Welcome to Sentient Planet. We know that industrial intensive animal agriculture is awful for animals, beyond contemplation awful. We also now know very categorically that it's hugely unsustainable for you know the climate and for the environment and for water etc and so the only question is you know how do we scale it back we have this massive post-war boom in industrial agriculture for animals and now we've got to at some point really really soon reach peak livestock and then come back down the other side of that awful mountain of suffering hi i'm susan woodward Hopefully you heard the news last month that in the United Kingdom, crabs, lobsters, octopus, and other decapods and cephalopods will be recognised as sentient beings. This means they will be added to new legislation expected to take effect in the UK very soon, the Animal Welfare Sentience Bill, and receive legal protections there for the first time. The action comes after a thorough review of scientific evidence that suggests it's very likely these creatures feel pain. So, boiling lobsters alive in the UK will soon become a thing of the past, as it is already in a handful of other countries, namely Norway, New Zealand and Switzerland. Expanding our recognition of sentience to more animals is definitely a step in the right direction. Here to share more about it is Executive Director of the UK branch of the Humane Society International, Claire Bass. Claire has been an animal advocate since childhood. In this interview, she also catches us up on how Brexit has allowed the Humane Society and its partner organisations to accelerate their efforts to ban live exports and the import of fur and hunting trophies as well as deepen campaigns on behalf of the 88 billion animals who suffer every year so humans can eat meat and dairy products. We cover a lot of ground today. The bottom line is that the way we treat our non-human animal kin has got to change, and Claire makes me think that that change is at least on the horizon. So Claire, thanks very much for joining us on Sentient Planet. I'm excited to have you on the show and to learn about what's happening in the United Kingdom at the moment. You are the Executive Director of the Humane Society UK and you're joining us today from London. Could you start by briefly educating our listeners about your organisation and its mission? Sure, yes. Well, thank you for having me today, Susan. It's a pleasure to talk. Um, yeah, so Humane Society International is one of the world's largest and most effective animal protection organisations. And I, yeah, I manage and I direct the UK office. So we have affiliates all over the world in countries, including uh, India, Brazil, Mexico, Canada, uh, a long list. Yeah, our mission really is pretty simple. It's that we, you know, want to celebrate animals for all the amazing things that they are and, and bring to our lives. And we want to confront cruelty wherever it happens and ensure better protection. And we work on a really wide range of issues for animals. So I think that's one of our USPs actually, is that we, you know, we sort of say from mice to whales and everything in between, you know, we've got a campaign somewhere in the world fighting for better protection for all animals. And the organisation's been around a long time. We were actually born out of the Humane Society of the United States, which is a very large uh, charity over in the States, as I'm sure you know. And early, I think it was in the sort of 90s, Humane Society International came out of a originally a need for HSUS to have, have a presence in more than, I think it was three countries, because we wanted to be able to attend intergovernmental meetings like the International Whaling Commission. Uh, and some of these MEAs, these uh, intergovernmental bodies, had a kind of rule that, you know, to be an official observer, you had to be present in more than three countries. So that's that's actually the, the sort of genesis, the origins of um, HSI. And since then, in the last uh, however many decades that is, yeah, we've really grown massively. We're, you know, we're a couple of hundred staff around the world, you know, active in 50 countries and going from strength to strength. 
And I'm sure you've helped millions of animals along the way and will continue to. Let's jump straight into some pretty amazing news that made global headlines in November when the British government recognised that crabs and lobsters and other crustaceans, as well as octopus and other invertebrates, possess sentience. That at the very least, these animals have feelings and intelligence and can feel pain. Can you help us understand the legal and moral framework in which this occurred? Yeah, so it's incredibly exciting, as you say, and it's something we've been fighting for, along with colleagues at other NGOs, for a good few years now. And really, I mean, I suppose the recognition of sentience is, uh, of these species is, is underpinned by science. It's as simple as that, really. And the whole bill is about the science that shows us that certain species of animals, all vertebrates, and now the cephalopods and the decapod crustaceans, are sentient. And that's really what any right thinking person recognises is that these animals have the capacity to feel pain and pleasure. They have, you know, emotional lives and that we as such, you know, we can really significantly influence the way that their lives, you know, are led and the extent to which they experience pleasure or pain or or, uh, other emotions. Uh, And so the science, you know, is very clear. The government commissioned a very comprehensive study from the London School of Economics, which collated all of the relevant scientific evidence of sentience in those species, and then drew some conclusions and said unequivocally, we should give these species the benefit of the doubt, you know, um, because, that you know, there's very good evidence that they're sentient, and, and we should treat them accordingly. So this is part of a bill, the Animal Welfare or Sentience Bill that is currently before the UK Parliament that will become law. Can you talk a little bit more about it, its intent and purpose, and when it might become law? Yeah, so this is a bill we've fought really hard for since, well, really since the UK uh, public voted to leave the European Union uh, back in 2016. It seems like a lifetime ago now, but at that point we knew that we wanted to make sure that the UK would not lose legal protections for animals as a result of our departure from the EU. And many of our animal protection laws were derived from the EU, including at that point, our legal sort of recognition of animal sentience in law. That was in the, the Lisbon Treaty, Article 13. And so when we left the uh, European Union, we lost that legal recognition in law. And mm. so we mounted a campaign with, uh, with other like-minded organisations to have the UK government put it back in, in uh, you know, the standalone piece of legislation. And it's important, I think, you know, symbolically, because it says that we recognise that these animals are sentient, that they are not just objects, you know, they're not, it's not a lettuce or a chair, you know, this is an animal with a, uh, an emotional life. And that therefore, because of that, we have certain duties towards them. We have a, a moral duty and a legal duty wherever we can to minimise harms and suffering that we might cause them. Yeah, the bill will, we hope, it's currently in the House of Lords. It will have to go early next year to the House of Commons. Um, And we hope that it will be in law in the early part, the first quarter of of next year, you know, by perhaps April time, if I was guessing. And yeah, that'll be a big celebration at that point. For sure. So will that new law, Claire, will that go further than what existed previously under the European Union's laws? Or is it really just a replication of what already existed? It does go further in in one quite important respect, actually a couple of important respects. So firstly, in terms of the the definition of uh, the scope of the animals covered in the European context, it's only vertebrates. Secondly, the European recognition of sentience only applied to certain policy areas. So there were certain other policy areas that were not included. I can't remember off the top of my head what they were, but there were certain things that, you know, weren't covered where member states didn't really have to apply sentience, you know, considerations. And the third and probably most important difference is that in the UK law, what it will do is create a new body, the Animal Sentience Committee, which will be charged with essentially scrutinising whether government has had all due regard to sentient animals and their welfare needs when making and implementing policies. And that's something that the European Union doesn't have. So they don't really have a, you know, enforcement mechanism or an accountability mechanism. So that's important to us that, you know, we should be able to hold government to account. Obviously, they'll be accountable ultimately to Parliament to be answerable for, you know, whether they have had that concern that's now a legal requirement. So who's going to be on that animal sentience committee to make sure government is held to account? 
it's likely to be a range of experts. I mean, we've, we've made very clear that we think obviously there should be animal welfare experts in there. That's kind of obvious. <laughs> animal ethics as well, ethicists, animal behaviorists, and then, you know, a range of other uh, experts, you know, a legal brain, you know, would be important in there as well. So to understand sort of the policy political landscape. And I'm sure, you know, there'll be um, other lobbies that will be agitating to, you know, have representatives of industry or other quarters in there as well. But from our perspective, you know, it really should be as much as possible independent experts, you know, scientists, uh, yeah, experts in animal welfare. Because as soon as you start having too many vested interests in committees like that, then you, you can pretty much guess what the conclusion will be before you've, you know, even asked the question. Sure. So you mentioned that there is some improved scope in this new sentience law. And I think by that, you're probably talking about the crabs and lobsters, et cetera, that have been included as, you know, recognised as being sentient beings. So what's it going to mean for these animals going forward? Well, in immediate terms, what their inclusion in this bill means that the Animal Sentience Committee would be able to scrutinise whether a government minister had taken their welfare needs into account properly when they were making a policy. So, for example, um, if the government was building a new wind farm, let's say, and there was a, an option to build the wind farm in an area of high density of decaprog crustaceans or not, then you might reasonably sort of expect to say to the minister, well, you know, did you consider uh, adapting your plan in order to not be just so disruptive to the habitat of these creatures and, and potentially cause them to die or have other problems? So that's what it does in the immediate term. In the longer term, we will be uh, arguing for these species to be added to other pieces of relevant animal welfare legislation. So things like our Animal Welfare Act, and uh, we have, you know, transport regulations for animals and slaughter regulations. So for those species to be added will mean, ultimately, we hope and are fairly confident that it should mean that certain practices will no longer be legal. So things like boiling, you know, mm -hmm. lobsters alive, declawing crabs while they're still alive, eye stalk ablation, things like that. If you're looking out for the welfare of those creatures, then very clearly these are not humane practices. Do you think it could also have a, an effect on fishing and harvesting practices? I think so in some cases. I mean, the industry, I think, has, you know, we, we've been talking to them for a while about this and they, they already have, uh, in a lot of cases, made adaptations to address the welfare because they, you know, realised, I think, probably quite some time ago that these are sentient creatures that they should treat with care. Um, and not least because, you know, treating animal animal health and animal welfare are very closely intertwined. And I think there's a recognition that even if you're not too worried about, you know, the intrinsic value of an animal or, or you know, causing it harm for the animal's sake, then you tend to get, you know, better outcomes for products, you know, that you're trying to turn them into if you treat them humanely. So we don't think on the industry side there, there may be a huge amount of adaptation for them to do. I think it's more on the slaughter side and the transport side, but the actual process of fishing and bringing them to, to shore, we don't think is so much of a, going to be so much of a, a massive overhaul for industry. Does the law in any way extend into any environmental areas? I'm thinking of things like, you know, if we recognise that animals are sentient, then we also have a duty to protect habitat. Is there anything like that? Or is this really just about the welfare, particularly of animals when we are consuming them for food, etc.? Well, it's a good question because they are in they are entwined. I mean, we do already have in law a requirement to protect the environment through, for example, environmental impact assessments. So this is actually a, a sort of analogous in a way that before you undertake, I don't know, say you're going to build a new road, uh, you'd have to do an environmental impact assessment to say, OK, if we build it here, then, you know, what habitats are we going to mess up? what environmental harms might we cause to special protected areas or, or whatever. And then you'd have to make adaptations and mitigation, you know, to try to ameliorate those harms. And this animal sentience policy kind of does the same thing for animals. It means that ministers will have to have a means of assessing the extent to which their policy choices may, you know, harm animal welfare 
and to be ready to tell Parliament and the public at large why they took the choice they did and why, you know, if there was a choice, if there was a policy option that involved less harm coming to animals, why they didn't take that. So it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that animals suddenly trump every other consideration, because obviously governments, ministers have a lot of things they need to take into account when they're making laws. But it means that animals are now part of the equation, that they, they're a legitimate legal concern for ministers um, to have. That's incredible, really, and something worth celebrating. Could you give me a little bit of an understanding of the current status of animal welfare in the UK? What are your laws like right now? Are they well enforced? Do you have inspections and high penalties for cruelty? I'd just love to get a sense of the lay of the land in the United Kingdom. Yes, I think, I mean, there's always plenty of room for improvement. I'm sure that's not a surprise, you know, to hear that. One one issue we've seen, we find, presents repeated challenges in a lot of the sort of enforcement of, of animal cruelty law is basically a lack of a lack of investment in things like inspections and, you know, local authorities being equipped to kind of carry out, you know, enforcement of the laws that they're charged with enforcing. So where you've got wildlife trade, for example, or puppy smuggling or, uh, you know, any number of horrible things happening to farm animals. We have the laws in place often, you know, that, that should stop these things happening. But often it's like local authorities who have very little money, very little staff, often, you know, not really the right expertise to fully utilise the law to its fullest extent and bring people, you know, to justice. So that's that's a kind of recurring theme, I think. Central government sort of pushed a lot of responsibility onto local government. But, you know, this government, I would say we've been very pleasantly surprised by how much this government is committing to animal welfare, you know, improving animal welfare laws uh, with things like the sentience bill, hopefully bans on uh, hunting trophies coming soon and hopefully uh, fur as well, as, as well as live exports. It's definitely a, wor- a work in progress. Can you give me an example, Claire, of something that was going awry for animals on you know, a reasonable scale that you guys investigated and were able to bring to the attention of authorities? Well, we, we haven't done investigations in the UK. What we have done actually recently is investigations in Finnish fur farms. Hmm. Finland is one of the few countries, few European com- countries that still farms foxes for their fur they cage around about between one and 1.5 million foxes in tiny barren cages every year um, just to kill them at around eight months old for their fur. Um, and people think of Finland as being, you know, quite a progressive country mm-hmm. and, and enlightened. So that, you know, that really jars the fur farm, the idea of, you know, keeping foxes or indeed any animal in barren battery cages. So we've, we've investigated those farms and we've shared um, incidents of, violations of the Finnish animal protection laws with you know the Finnish authorities. Which kind of raises the question about the new improved standards that you have there in the UK and the ways that the UK wants to ensure that animals are treated better, yet you have all of these trading partners, um, many I, mem- I imagine. Does this mean that you are no longer going to import animal products from countries that don't meet your standards of care? Will you no longer accept importation of animal parts? for hunting trophies, that kind of thing? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's the million-dollar question, really, Susan. I think the, the most important question in animal, animal welfare, animal protection globally, is trade, really, because to an extent, it doesn't matter how, how amazingly advanced and protective our UK laws are for, say, farmed animals, if we then completely undermine that by allowing imports of products that are produced to lower welfare standards and therefore are almost always much cheaper to produce because that does two things. It drives 
British farmers who are adhering to the higher welfare standards out of business because they're non they're not competitive anymore. And it creates, you know, a race to the bottom. It means that, you know, you're you're basically driving an economic model that says, you know, we just want to have this product as absolutely as cheaply as possible, regardless of, you know, what the welfare implications are for animals. So since the UK left the EU, we've been doing quite a lot of research on, you know, our trading position and um, which countries we're looking to establish free trade agreements with, including, um, you know, Australia, New Zealand, the two live ones. The US is a really big, important one that if it goes in the wrong direction, could have really, really catastrophic implications, particularly for farmed animal welfare with the import of battery cage eggs, etc. So, yeah, we want to push the UK government and indeed all governments to try to use free trade agreements uh, and trade deals to upwardly harmonise animal welfare. So to create a sort of race to the summit rather than a, um, a race to the bottom. Right. And you think that um, sentience, that, that term and that recognition is one of the one of the doorways in? I think it's really important, yeah, you know, when more and more countries are recognising animal sentience and recognising that that we have a duty to sentient animals, not to just treat them as, as commodities that we can do what we like to them, that creates a more level playing field. And it means that when we're trading with partners like New Zealand, for example, who have got quite an enlightened approach to animal welfare, strong animal protection laws and good governance bodies on things like welfare and sentience, that we're talking the same language, you know, we're, and we're trading in similar products because we have created systems that respect animals rather than created systems that just exploit them to the maximum possible degree. You mentioned that the Humane Society is working, making efforts in the direction of the ban of live exports. That's something that New Zealand did recently, and your Animals Australia counterparts with Lynn White down in Australia have been working on that quite tirelessly, that campaign for a long time, um, to no avail yet. So could you talk a little bit more about what's happening with live export from the UK and any of the other top issues that your organisation is working on? Yeah, sure. I mean, live exports, I would have to say, to give credit where it's due, is is a campaign that's been led by Compassion and World Farming and the Royal Society for Protection of Cruelty to Animals for literally decades Mm so i mean i feel the pain of our our australian colleagues on you know how long it's taking to get uh, movement on this it's taken us a very very long time we have a bill going through parliament at the moment that would ban live exports of animals and there is also forthcoming plans to adjust the transport regulations in the uk to introduce maximum journey times and certain conditions for how animals have to be treated even you know when they're moving around the UK internally so that's huge progress yeah I think sends an important message you know to our trading partners as well that what we stand for because the UK government likes to talk about being a world leader in animal welfare but you know you need more than words you've got to you know follow up with the actions. Does that bill have a lot of support? Uh, It does actually it doesn't have a huge amount of opposition either, which is very good. Yeah, I think people realise this this is its time, that it has been such a long haul to get here. And this government has sort of said, actually, now we're in a place to do it. That's wonderful. So, Because yeah. it, there is a kind of inevitability around such a blatant, um, cruel trade. Yeah, and something that's so completely unnecessary, you know, that we don't have to do it. If you want to trade in animal parts, animal products for meat, for example, you know, you can do that with refrigerated vans and Mm -hmm. lorries, you know, so there's no need. And I think, you know, I suppose it is one of the kind of bonuses that we derive from leaving the EU. This wouldn't really have been possible as part of the EU. And now now it is. So it's great to see the government capitalising on these opportunities that we have, you know, as as an independent country. I'm thinking about the public awareness around that live trade industry is it quite heightened is there a lot of public support is there a lot of public awareness about the live trade of animals well i think groups like compassion in world farming and rspca have done a really good job and also some of the vigil guys uh you know who do who sort of go to you know slaughterhouses or go to trucks that are going to be sent off to the continent and film the animals through the slats of their trucks i think social media has really 
empowered and enabled those campaigns and those campaigners who are willing to be out, you know, in the freezing cold in the middle of the night, chasing these trucks around and, and bearing witness. It has been a big campaign. And I think it's difficult for the government to in any way defend that as OK, particularly, as I said, when there, when there are humane alternatives available. Yeah, so lots of exposés, it sounds like, which can only help those causes. Definitely, yeah. Okay, and so some of the other top issues that you guys are addressing right now for either wild or domestic animals that are really high on your agenda? Yeah, so so one of our big campaigns is fur um, and trying to get the UK to be, well, it'll be the second country in the world to ban the fur trade. Israel pipped us to the post by banning it over the summer this year, which is great for them. It would be a really important step. You know, the UK is quite an important trading hub for the the global fur trade. We estimate we're importing the equivalent of of something like two million animals worth of fur, you know, in pelts and parts every year, which, as I said, you know, is just a, a double standard because if we banned it here because it was too cruel, why are we paying people overseas to produce, you know, the exact same cruel products? Do you know where most of that fur is coming from? It's quite a, a wide range of countries, actually. I mean, a lot's coming from China. China is definitely the, the world's largest fur farming nation, probably represents about half of the total production output. But also countries including Finland, some Eastern European countries, Poland, etc. It's a diminishing list of countries that still allow fur farming. We're working with our colleagues in Europe and further afield, you know, to try to get more countries to put in place fur farming bans. Um, as well as the trade bans that really pull the plug for out of the market and uh, and will make investors think twice about whether this is you know a lucrative future proof industry and it's very clearly not. Well, and the fur industry again, that's just one of those really long time fights that animal advocates have been having to to end that really cruel trade, and it feels like there's that's another industry whose time is coming to an end. Yeah, absolutely. It's just indefensible. I just I find it mind boggling, really, that the fur industry thinks that, you know, a meter squared wire cage, you know, to put an animal like a fox or a mink in that for its entire life before gassing it or you know, anally electrocuting it, that that's in any way in keeping with, you know, modern understanding of animal welfare and what animals needs are and all sorts of horrible things happen to animals. But keeping animals in cages for their entire lives I think if you ask the average five-year-old like is that okay and do you think the animal will be happy you know they would say of course not it's not a difficult concept you don't have to be a vet or an animal welfare expert to know that that's just wrong hi it's Susan sentient planet amplifies the voices of the species with whom we share the earth and the humans dedicated to their urgent defence and preservation. We're providing additional content at patreon.com slash sentientplanet. I hope you'll check it out and consider supporting us for a few dollars a month. Thank you. The biggest issue for animal welfare um, globally in terms of numbers is obviously farming animals for meat and eggs and, and milk, etc. We have a, a program called Forward Food uh, in the UK, and it's also in, in several other countries, which is where we're working with large catering companies to help them to inspire and enable them to put more plants and less animals on plates and menus. And it, that's something I'm really proud of that we do because I think it's a very solution focused approach encouraging diet change we know that industrial intensive animal agriculture is awful for animals beyond contemplation awful we also now know very categorically that it's hugely unsustainable for you know the climate and for the environment and for water etc and so the only question is you know how do we scale it back we have this massive post war boom in industrial agriculture animals and now we've got to at some point really really soon reach peak livestock and then come back down the other side of that awful mountain of suffering and so yeah our program is about rather than I suppose you know a kind of stick approach and rather than saying you must change your diet or you mustn't eat this or that the other 
we're showcasing how fantastic plant-based diets and dishes can be. You know, they can be tasty, nutritious and help the environment and help animals in the process. So we're having great success with that and working with companies who are pledging to reduce their meat procurement by 30%, which is a phenomenal amount of animals not suffering in factory farms. Meat consumption, it is just, it's such a dicey kind of conversation to have with really anyone in our personal circles. And I'm just wondering, it sounds like what you're advocating is for people to come to their own conclusions and to eat a healthier diet that also would mean less suffering for fewer animals. So a diminishment, because what we have right now is really unfathomably a huge scale of animals that we're killing every year for meat, billions and billions across the world. A couple of questions for you on that front. Do you think that meat eating needs to eventually leave humanity, that we should be striving for an end to meat eating? It seems like such a huge goal, but do you think it's something we could strive for? Do you think there'll always be some and that there are ways to slaughter animals humanely for those people who do still choose to eat meat? I just wonder where you sit on that continuum. Yeah, it's a really, really important question. I mean, I think our, our basic starting point and premise is, you know, if if you can avoid causing suffering, then you, that's what you should do. So if that's your goal, then you know how how can you do that, and what's sort of necessary? And increasingly, I think what we're finding is a really exciting landscape for alternative proteins. We look at you know the sacrifices that people are being asked to make. I mean, I you know I've been vegan for goodness knows how many 20 years or something and I don't see it as a sacrifice at all I never have but for those people who really do want to eat meat they've now got so many alternatives that are very similar to the texture and flavor of the meat they love even even the smell I've noticed when you cook that stuff it even smells like meat which actually can be a little off-putting yeah totally some of it's a bit quite sure about some of it but (laughs) if, if that's what you want to go you know seamlessly from eating bacon to bacon then that's great, you know, and it means that people don't have to make perceived sacrifice that some people think. And then if we look at, you know, at cultivated meats, you know, sort of lab cell grown meats, which are are literally, you know, animal cells and fibres, that's another area of huge promise and technological development. Quite recently, the US USDA actually invested, you know, a grant of $10 million into the tech behind trying to expand cultivated mm. meats, which tells you a lot. If the USDA is thinking about it, it's definitely where we're heading. And so I think that it's it's sort of a bit inevitable that we will stop farming animals, um, certainly at the massive factory industrial scale that we're doing right now, because those alternatives will be viable and they will come to market and they will be more economically viable. They'll be better for the environment. They'll certainly be better for animals. And yeah, we'll look back on the 20th century and our love affair and our obsession with cheap meat with kind of horror and disbelief, I think. Yeah, I hope for that day as well. When I think about England and I think about animals over there, fox hunting is something that always um, comes into my mind. Is that something that's still occurring over there, that so-called sport? (laughs) Yeah, well, sport in the absolute um, loosest sense of the word, yeah. It is, unfortunately. I mean, technically it shouldn't be. It is banned. And it's been banned for a very long time, since the late 90s. But unfortunately, the ban has a loophole in it, which allows a hunt to continue to pursue trails. So scent trails that they're meant to create driving around on a quad bike using a a rag that's got some scent on it. They use some, you know, some sort of very pungent, you know, animal urine or something. They can create scent trails and they can, and the hunt can follow those trails legally. Now, what happens in practice is that they accidentally end up chasing foxes and deer and other animals. We found recently, well, around about a year ago, I think it came to light, there was a a webinar uh, leaked, the master of a hunt and a hunt association that they thought they were talking, you know, just to each other in a closed shop. And they were talking about the smokescreen of trail hunting and how um, you can use it. You know, that's the actual word they use. You know, it's a smokescreen and you can use it to throw the, the antis, you know, off course. And this was somehow leaked and became massive headline new- news in the, in the UK. The man behind it was actually recently convicted and found guilty of an offence. 
the hunting act definitely needs to be strengthened because at the moment it's just like a swiss cheese it's full of holes and they are being very very ably exploited by the hunting community so yes we're working with groups like the league against cruel sports who've been fighting for hunted animals for a very long time to try and strengthen the hunting act so you know those hunters that enjoy that kind of again so-called sport you know they argue that this is a tradition that's that you know there's camaraderie and they have this whole mentality around why and justification i think around why that kind of activity is okay is there any way of breaking through that mentality or really are the options just to go out there and strengthen the laws and hold people accountable gosh that's a that's a difficult question to to answer i mean i I would like to think that it might be possible, but we don't have time really to find out if we can do it, if we can do it in a sort of gently coercive way. It's really animals are being horribly hunted and maimed and killed in nasty ways for sport, in inverted commas, for trophy hunting. And frankly, the sort of people who are doing that kind of thing don't seem to me to be sort of people who are amenable to much reason or shifting of their moral compass which may be somewhat lacking direction in the first place that's why we for those issues are just working hard to get laws in place that mean that they can't carry on with things like fox hunting under the disguise of trail hunting and in the case of hunting trophies we're trying to get a ban put in place to make it illegal to bring hunting trophies into the UK so that if you go off to South Africa pay a few thousand pounds to shoot a lion, you then can't bring its head back and wall mount it in your castle or wherever you live. Your elephant tusks or any of the other horrific things that go on over there. Claire, a little bit about you personally, if that's okay. Why did you choose animal advocacy for your career path? Why is it important to you? How'd you get get started? I have always, I suppose, been an animal lover, right from, you know, when I was a little girl and I think grew up in a house where I was lucky to be really surrounded by very compassionate adults. In particular, my grandmother was always rescuing animals. We constantly had a shoebox <laughs> in the corner of a kitchen near the radiator with some you know, wounded hedgehog or bird with a wing that needed to recover. And so I think from a really young age, I kind of learned yeah, respect for animals and how much you as an individual can have power over animals and you can either use that positively or you know negatively and we had i had hamsters i think growing up several multiple hamsters whose names all began with h so they can (laughs) alliterate nicely i remember feeling uncomfortable even at quite a young age under 10 about them being in in having to live in a cage Um, and i always wanted to get them out and i spent my whole time sitting on the floor so that the hamster could run around and dig up the carpet and bury food in places. <laughs> I suppose that idea of enriching an animal's life just was very visceral to me. And then as I got a bit older, I had some friends who were vegetarian and who challenged me because I wasn't vegetarian. I didn't turn veggie until I was 14, who said, you know, well, if you love your hamster so much or your dog or whatever, this is what happens on farms. This is what happens at slaughter. Would you do that to your pets? And I it was kind of like the scales falling away really, just kind of like, well, if you wouldn't do it to an animal in front of you, you shouldn't pay someone else to do it. Yeah. So yeah, and it kind of went from there really that I I did a science degree, a biology degree, and then went on to do a master's in relevant areas. Yeah, and got into the field of animal protection to try to advocate on, on their behalf. What does sentience mean to you? Um, just that little question. Well, I mean, in practical terms, it it means animals' ability to experience emotions, very simply. Um, It means that they have emotional lives, that they value what happens in those lives, and that therefore, you know, we have a duty to respect the things that they would or wouldn't want to be happening to them in their lives. And, you know, as as I said before, it's a lot about power, I think, if you are in a position of power wherever that's the case, you know, you should use that power to try to better the lives of others, whether it's people or sentient animals, and certainly that you shouldn't abuse that power to cause suffering. Um, and I think, you know, sentience really, sometimes people get very 
into sort of very existential questions about, you know, well, are, are some animals more sentient than others? Or, you know, are humans more important? For me, in all the most important ways, you know, we are very similar to animals in our ability to suffer and to experience joy or fear or pain or, you know, happiness. We experience those things in different ways, but fundamentally, yeah, we're a lot more similar than people would often give credit for. Yeah, two eyes, a nose and a mouth, for starters. Claire, I was listening to you on a BBC podcast and one of the other guests was quite incredulous and, and amazed that when you were explaining to her that there are many animal species who possess self-awareness, getting back to the science of sentience, she was just kind of dumbfounded. So it seems like there's still quite a few people out there in the world who um, haven't caught up with some of the most recent information that's available to us about just how incredible self-possessed, self-aware, many species, perhaps all species, are. Yeah, I think that is sadly the case. I suppose what gives me hope is that we are evolving fairly swiftly. If we look back to some of the things that were considered, you know, normal or legally permissible, even, you know, 100 years ago to animals and indeed to people, let's not forget, you know, some of the horrific things in our human history that we hang our heads in shame for, that if we look back at that and then look at, you know, ahead to the direction of travel of a more enlightened and more compassionate relationship with the animal kingdom, I think that's what gives me hope. But yes, you're right that a lot of people still just see animals as either something to exploit, to get what you want out of them as a commodity or uh, an inconvenience. If they inconvenience you in any way, shape or form, then just reach for the poison or the shotgun mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever inhumane quick fix you can come up with. And so that's, yeah, really problematic and is the root of a lot of our campaigns globally for wildlife is trying to educate people, you know, that these are our sentient creatures, their lives matter and the way we treat them matters and that there's always more than one option, that the, the immediate choice of getting rid of an, problem animals, animals that encroach into, into our human space that we've decided is our domain, there's always other ways. You don't have to seek inhumane solutions. Yeah. Yeah, we're having good progress on, on a lot of those areas as well. Maybe we could start with banishing the word pest from the English language. Oh, gosh, yeah, don't get me started. Vermin and all of that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and, it, you know, if you look at the International Whaling Commission, which actually had its 75th anniversary just this week. Yeah, I tuned into that, actually. Oh, did you? Yes. And when you look at you know, still some of the language that's used in the Commission's convention texts, you could easily be forgiven for thinking you're talking about bags of corn rather than these incredible, you know, majestic, highly intelligent, highly sociable, in many cases, animals. You know, they talk about maximum sustainable yield, about harvesting, harvest capacity. Language matters. And when you, you know, you define something as a commodity that's there to be harvested or as a pest that's therefore legitimate fair game for all sorts of awful, you know, inhumane death. Yeah, language matters and, and encouraging people to not use terms that lead to animals being treated in that way is, is important. Yeah, it seems like we need to, it's the humans that need to make a big evolutionary jump in our, in our thinking here. So the animal sentience bill it seems to me like that is quite a jump, seeing that word show up in law like that. I'm wondering what comes next. So what would your organisation like to see enshrined in law after the animal sentience bill? Is it animal rights? Well, I think, I mean, I suppose, you know, HSI is quite a pragmatic organisation. And so we try to work at the pace that society, that the public, that governments and companies 
can cope with because going in and you know asking for the moon doesn't really get you very far. So I think based on the reaction that we've had in particularly in the House of Lords to the sentience bill, which frankly is pretty moderate. This is not a kind of a lunar landing type exercise. This is really quite science-based and moderate in its demands. To think of going from that onto animal rights, I think we're way off of society and, and politicians and companies being ready for that. What I think is the most important thing that we really need government to focus on very, very urgently from COP26 in Glasgow is just reducing livestock production, dealing with animal agriculture. And that's you know really the only game in town when it comes to the scale of suffering of animals in the world. In, in intensive farms, in cages, in crates, having, you know, awful, terribly high stock densities, awful mutilations done to them, inhumane deaths. That's what has to end. And we need governments to really step up to the plate and own the journey, the strategy to that reduction. If not for animals, then for the climate as well, because we are all very acutely aware of how urgent the climate crisis is. And we don't have time to be sort of saying, Maybe people will eat a bit less meat or maybe they won't. It's got to be a proactive shift. So that's really, yeah, one of our core goals over the next year or two is to is to get government to sort of own a meat reduction agenda. Yeah, it's the only way forward. So was meat reduction and animal ag, was that actually seriously discussed at COP26? Because it seems to me that that industry and discussion about that has largely been missing from a lot of the climate change discussion, which is incredible. But as a climate activist myself, it just seems like a topic that doesn't get taken up as seriously as it should be. No, absolutely. And, and we ran a campaign at COP26 on exactly that. It was called The Cow in the Room. And it was about how world leaders are not seeing the cow in the room, you know, the elephant in the room of climate change, which is, you know, industrial animal agriculture. No, it wasn't on the agenda in a kind of meaningful way. There are various dialogues that involve, you know, the word agriculture and that talk about just transitions to more environmentally friendly agriculture. But it's all very, very woolly and it doesn't really grasp the nettle which is to say we just need to farm less animals. You know, 88 billion animals farmed each year worldwide is a lot too many animals from the animal's perspective, the animal welfare perspective, and from the environmental and climate perspective. The earth can't cope with that. 88 billion animals bred to be consumed. It's an absurd number. And we know that diet change is is a thorny topic and that for politicians to come out and say, right, here's what you can have for dinner is not going to be a vote winner. People don't like to be told what they should and shouldn't eat. But Well, and there's, there's obviously a lot of vested interests that make a lot of money out of, of animal agriculture yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. The farming lobby is very strong in the UK, you know, as it is in the US and many other countries. It is about taking people along on that journey. You know, we know that there are farmers out there who would be willing to shift away from livestock farming to farming vegetables, legumes, crops. So it's about incentivizing, really incentivizing that shift and removing some of the subsidies that have enabled and created this situation where we've got completely uns unsustainable animal farming that's propped up by you know, the public purse. There are steps in the right direction from the UK government on that, but it all just needs to happen a lot faster. Well, you guys are tackling some of the really big issues. What's your advice for top actions that just a person can individually take? As somebody who loves animals wants to make a difference, what are some of the things that they can do in this day and age on behalf of animals? Yeah, I think the top one is what we've just been talking about, really, is being a compassionate consumer. Choosing plant-based options is not only really easy these days uh, in countries like the UK, but it's, you know, it will open you up to a, a really wide range of exciting new, you know, tastes and flavours and, and choices. And health. And health, absolutely, yeah. And for people who are flexi or, you know, wanting to reduce, you know, that's great. We are a big tent organisation. We embrace all steps towards change. And there's other things, obviously, like making sure you don't buy caged eggs or products from animals that have been caged or kept in crates like pigs. That's already important. Beyond what we put on our plates, our consumer choices can have a big impact on animals in a whole raft of different ways. Obviously, fur, leather, those sorts of things in fashion are very problematic. And certainly, you know, no one should be buying fur in this day and age, as we've talked about. 
but also like how we where we go on holiday or what we choose to do when we're on holiday a lot of industries that cause animals suffering are only around because people are putting their consumer pound uh, into them so if you think about dolphin area or cub walks with lions in, in places like south africa you know they only exist because of the demand and so if we take the demand away then the business model fails and then obviously as a, a rescue dog owner myself i always very much encourage people to adopt instead of shopping for a brand new dog get a second hand one one that needs a home and enjoy all the the love that that brings lots of other ways people can make a difference just by being thoughtful about their choices where they involve animals Great. And how can our listeners support Humane Society International? I would encourage people to visit our website, hsi.org. It's got a huge amount of information about all the different campaigns that we run for animals from the very smallest to the very biggest and the different ways that we seek to influence policy and public behaviours as well. And it's also got some great sections on you know how people can get involved. There's lots of different ways to do that, including volunteering, fundraising, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, check out our website. Great. Claire, it's been a really fantastic conversation. I'd like to thank you and your colleagues for everything that you're doing on behalf of animals in the world. And just thanks very much for being on the show. Oh, thank you, Susan. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thanks a lot. For more about today's guest, as well as actions for animal justice that you can take, please visit sentientplanetpodcast.com and join our pod. We're also on socials at Sentient Planet Podcast, and you can support our work on Patreon. Susan Woodward is your host and content producer. Our social media and outreach manager is Ari Simmons. Sound engineering by Liam Wilkinson. Art direction by Janet Grimwade. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. All interstitial music by Stella Drone. Our love to all beings. Thanks for listening. <laughs>